When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Saturday Session with Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Ten o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. Uh, no Daniel McCarty. No Grant Elliott. Um, probably they're collectively and individually a little bit better looking, a little bit more intelligent. So you're going to have to put up with me through to one o'clock. Mark Watson with you. Telephone number this hour is 0800-150-811. Do want to get your thoughts on that performance by the Black Caps, which finished around about six thirty this morning, New Zealand time. New Zealand getting up to win the series in Pakistan by two wickets with 11 balls remaining. A remarkable performance in the finish. Some very good batting from the top order. Finn Allen with 25. Devin Conway backing up the 100 with 52. Kane Williamson starting to come back into some form with 53. Daryl Mitchell, 31. But probably the real star of the show, Glenn Phillips with 63. And chasing down the target set by Pakistan. And not, not an easy target either, particularly in the conditions in Pakistan, taking chasing down Pakistan's 280 for nine. So we will look at those highlights. We'll bring you some audio as well, but we'd love you to have your say on 0800 150 We will get an update from number one tennis lane, what used to be known as Stanley Street. We have the ASB Men's Classic Final on today. Gasquet will take on Cameron Norrie, the French veteran up against Norrie the man from Great Britain who grew up and played a lot of his tennis here in New Zealand. I don't know, there's a part of me that wants to see Gasquet win this just because I've always enjoyed him. Four Grand Slam semi-finals, 15 professional tournament wins, a veteran on the circuit, just seems like a good guy. Um, Cameron Norrie, look, great story that he came out of here. I understand why he went to the UK, why he tapped into the British system and why he's representing Britain. I think what it also demonstrates is that maybe that is the pathway for our young tennis talent. What is New Zealand talent doing in terms of looking at how Cameron Norrie has cracked, well, the top 10 in the world at times, reached the semi-finals of Wimbledon? Because I think we get our talent at a pretty high level up to about the age of 13, 14, but then we just can't seem to bridge that gap. Do we need to set up facilities? Do we need to set up some type of schooling system? In the UK, is that a bit too over the top? Or is that just the harsh reality if you do want to make it in tennis? Um, so 0800 150 We will talk to Ben Kennings. The New Zealand Surfing Championships are on at PR. It is finals day. We have our top four men. We have our top four women vying for the honour of being called New Zealand Surf Champion. And, of course, that being staged at the might of almighty PR. We will talk to Julia Ratcliffe. Julia Ratcliffe, 
Commonwealth Games gold medalist in hammer throw back in 2018, silver this year in Birmingham, Olympian, went to Princeton University. She announced her retirement from the sport yesterday at the young age of 29. We'll catch up with her as well. We'll also talk to eight-time New Zealand surf champion Billy Stearmond. All that and more. Don't forget you can text us here on double eight double three. Now, Ben Francis is producing the show this morning and Ben's been come up with something, not innovative, but I think it's a really cool concept. Is it innovative? Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on Ben. Uh, but has, he's, he's decided that if he's going to play music off the back of the breaks, he's going to decide to play music to introduce the next hour, introduce the new host. He wants to have a theme with his music. Last week we had the harmonica. Um, which was fascinating. We we sort of collectively decided that uh, Piano Man might just be the most famous song with the harmonica in it, or perhaps the song that is made by the use of a harmonica. We did a show later in, earlier in the week too, where we Ben had decided that songs with people's names in them, and I think that might have come down to Sweet Caroline and Billie Jean. And I think Billie Jean, probably the most famous song in the world or certainly the biggest song in the world featuring name for the fact that it was just done by Michael Jackson in his peak. It was also done when Jackson did the moonwalk, when Jackson had the white glove, glove which became obviously iconic in terms of the brand that is Michael Jackson. So Ben Francis, having to listening to that opening song, can I suggest that maybe, maybe, are we looking at the saxophone? You're absolutely correct. That, Sexy Saturday. Sexy Saturday. The I love the sax, but I love my hard rock, and I don't know too many song, hard rock songs with a saxophone in them. Well, Bruce Springsteen, of course. Clarence, I think it was Clarence Clements, was yeah, his saxophone died, player. Died a few years ago, didn't he? Yeah, so he's got. I think. I think it might be actually a relative of his who's currently the the current saxophone player for the E Street Band. But look, anything by by him, I know Cold Chisel have a couple of songs with the saxophone in it. Same with the Rolling Stones, I'm pretty sure. So, look, see, I think lot, there are quite a few rock bands that do have the saxophone at least in probably one of their songs, but it's not a common instrument in, in the rock scene. No, it's not. And so what we want people to do is if you've got, if you can, and it's a hard one, but if you can think of songs with a saxophone in it and you text them through to us on 8833, we'll try and play those songs um, throughout the show, uh, throughout that particular hour. Um, I, I said this a little bit about the harmonica. Sometimes you know the song, but you don't necessarily identify the instrument that makes the song until a situation like this comes along and you go, actually, that song, I never really thought about it. It's the harmonica that makes it. It is the saxophone that does make it. So you've got Baker Street, uh, Jerry Rafferty, considered to be one of the great songs, just giving you some other ideas. Um, people might not know this, but in the song Money by Pink Floyd, there is a saxophone. Um, and of course, I don't know, maybe one of the most famous songs, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. So we might play that a little bit later and see if we can identify the saxophone in that. So just something slightly different to bring you a little bit of a, a music genre to go with what we are doing primarily this morning, which is ultimately talking sport. So let's look at this 
third in deciding one day international between Pakistan and New Zealand. 50 overs, Pakistan winning the first game, New Zealand winning the second game. It was all set up for a third and final decider. Let's bring you the highlights of this morning's and last night's deciding match between the might of Pakistan and our beloved New Zealand. New Zealand will not review. Masood's beaten his ear as they're a thin edge. They go up. It carried through to Latham. But Alim Dar is again in a grumpy mood. He puts his head down. Kane Williamson just looks confused and puts the little finger on his hand and says, let's have a look. And there is, oh, there's a little spike. The little spike. spike when ball next to the back. Go back to the on-field. Ali, I recommend you overturn your decision to out. This is very well bowled. He stumped him. Slides past the outside edge of Bubba's arm. Floated up beautifully by Bracewell. No bite in the wicket, and he's just walked past one. It's all business here. Is Sadna wider of off stump, spinning back and nicely played off the back foot, playing it through cover and extra cover, and that's going to be four runs. Another example of how slippery this outfield is. Some oh, goes outside of leg, and then towering blow over deep mid wicket. Over the fence for six runs. Out of the attack goes Bracewell and Southie in for his third spell. And he starts full and has driven gorgeous stroke through extra cover out of the fence for four. Sodi to Rizwan now. Rizwan bold, gone. Rizwan's got himself in all sorts of a tangle. Tried to lap one into the offside. Stepped across, stepped back. It came back at him from Sodi and takes out the middle stump. Sodi from over the wicket, the right arm, leg spin up, bowling to the left-hander. The crowd urging him on. He goes back, dabs it into the offside, and steals another run, and gets to 100. His eighth one-day international 100 for his troubles. The ball's been thrown at the non-striker's end, and I think has hit him. He looks in a bit of pain, but he musters enough strength to raise the bat, acknowledge the crowd. Well played, like a Zaman. He dabs into the point region. He'll steal another run, will he? The throw to the non-struggers. It hits the stumps. He might be short. The umpire finally, finally goes upstairs. I thought he wasn't going to review or ask for some help from the TV, TV umpire. It's a run out for Fakhar. He's it? gone. He's out. He is gone, Jeremy. I'm ready to make my decision. Here yeah. is a slog sweep over deep mid-wicket and a long way back to high into the stands. Off the bat of Salman. Again, Harris Hale batting well outside of the league start, but he's hit up towards mid-off. He takes off for the run. He's caught short. Another direct hit from New Zealand. Charges. Down the ground goes Noah. he got enough on it? Yes, he does. And he's bowled him. Top of off stump. Slightly slower out of the hand, it seemed, from Southie. Noah's tried to cut. Tim Southie continues. Usama Mir steps back into his crease, launches it over the offside and it's gone all the way for six. What a shot that is, first ball. 11 balls left. Steps away, whips it on the leg side but doesn't get enough on it and a well-taken catch by Doug Bracewell. Oh, this is smashed over mid-off. Is it big enough? No, it is not. Straight up in the air, Kane Williamson running backwards from the edge of the... 30-metre circle takes a very good catch. Lockie Ferguson. Oh, he hits this one very strongly down the ground. 
over long on. Has it gone for six? It might have landed on the boundary rope. That is a great shot from Aznaim. It's been given as a four. Pakistan, 280 for nine. They set New Zealand 281 to win. Onway driving through the covers. That's the best of the bunch. Just to the right of cover. Out to the fence for four. Pushes to the man at cover point, and he's... Van Allen has been run out. A wonderful piece of fielding. Pakistan have their first wicket. It is the substitute fielder, Tayab Tahir. Short, and Devin Conway punches down the ground to bring up his 50. Devin Conway's third one-day international 50 comes off 60 balls. He salutes the changing room and the crowd. It's a warm round of applause from this Karachi crowd. Around the wicket to Conway. It's in the air. Taken at point. Devin Conway falls for 52. A full ball from Salman flighted up. A hint of turn. And it squirts off the outside half of the bat of Devin Conway. Mitchell comes down the wicket, hits uppishly and straight enough to beat Midoff. That's a good stroke. Harris Ralph did not have a long way to go around to his right. And it's just skipped off the surface. One bounce into the fence for four. Mitchell goes to nine. Harris Ralph, crowd urging him on. He bowls full. Mitchell hits high over long off. Hasn't got all of it, but there's no one back there. And it still carries. I got that horribly wrong, didn't I? I thought that was going to land well inside the rope. He's a strong man, Jonathan. 145 for two. Salman. Crossed up on leg stump. Looked to be going down. Salman wants to send this upstairs straight away. He thinks this is an LBW. You can move on to ball tracking when it's ready. As you can hear, no bad involved. And because it's full, Original it's hitting not out. the ankle and very low. I think that's a good Impact umpire's call. Wicket's missing. It's missing another stump. Go back to the on-field. There you go, Salman, the bowler, cannot Ethan. believe it. Gotcha! Reverse swept and out. Mitchell goes for the reverse sweep. It's somewhat of a top edge and is taken by the man at short third man. Williamson cuts away and that will be his 50. Fielded by Tayab on the boundary. Kane Williamson's 42nd. One day international 50. Brought up 64 deliveries. Situation, reverse sweep from Tom Latham. And this could be a run out. That is fantastic fielding. Oh, I think it's out. That third man, Kane Williamson, looks to be short of his ground. He's going upstairs. It was hit straight to the man. And he is he's probably foot and a half to two feet short. To make He's my reaching decision. out and he ran hard. There probably wasn't a run there because Latham got hold of the ball and it went to that fieldsman pretty quickly. Sensational throw from Muhammad Wazim. Rizwan had to move only inches to take the bales off. And Kane Williamson is gone, run out for 53 from 68 balls. Goes back, pulls high over wide, long on, and for six. He's a strong man, Glenn Phillips. 
but he starts with a wicket inside edge onto the stumps. Mohamed Wazim, dream bowling change from Babarazam. I think a little bit of luck and inside edge from Latham. He's trying to shovel it through mid wicket. He goes, waits on the crease now, hits uppishly down the ground, pass mid on, but only just he might have got a finger on it. Mohamed Wazim cannot believe his lack of luck. It's going to creep over the boundary for four. Aris Ralph then. On the university end. Hit high over mid-wicket. Into the stands again by Glenn Phillips. Wazim. This is pulled away by Glenn Phillips. Did he get it far enough? Oh, yes, he did. The ball boy drops the catch about 10 metres over the boundary rope. That's done, in it? to Phillips, he'll turn it through mid-wicket, into a gap. Phillips has finished the job for New Zealand. 46 long years ago, New Zealand last won a one-day series in Pakistan. Well, the class of 2023 is just the second team. Williamson's men have done it, thanks to Glenn Phillips. A brilliant knock from the stricken right-hander full of power and precision and he's got New Zealand home with two wickets in hand and 11 balls to spare great job Glenn Phillips moment he can be incredibly proud of 63 not out of just 42 balls four fours four sixes New Zealand win the best of three match series by two games to one coming down from 1-0 impressive absolutely from the Black Caps yeah great call too by the boys uh, Daniel McCarty there along with the rest of the team Henry Nichols would be somewhat concerned by the form of Glenn Phillips there is a call for Nichols to be replaced in the test side against England by Glenn Phillips Nichols has a very good record at home not a great record away what do the New Zealand selectors do who would you rather see Nichols or Phillips, 0800-150-811. Good performance from the Black Caps. A one-day series victory in Pakistan. One of my themes this week on the radio, I'm just trying to sort of say, what does it all mean, though? Where does this sit? Where's the legacy? Are we talking about the series in 10 years' time? And the reality is we're not. In fact, most people would have forgotten this six months from now, maybe three months from now. Most people might not have even really been that concerned if we had a lost, which is a real concern for the game of cricket. Uh, I've continued to sort of put that out as a bit of a talkback host. What is the solution here? How do we recapture the magic of one-day cricket in the 1980s, 1990s? Uh, T20 cricket's come along. It's provided a different level of magic, but it's a bit like fast food, isn't it? It sort of helps the appetite, but there's nothing memorable about it. It's a bit of a quick fix. 0800 We'll take a break and then we'll come back and we'll hear from cricket captain Kane Williamson on that performance, get his thoughts on what this particular series does mean and what it means heading into the T20 series against India coming up shortly. Now, PGG Rights and Turf, premium suppliers of turf, 
seed and maintenance products to cricket grounds around New Zealand. Just want to acknowledge PG Wrightson. Um, key suppliers to New Zealand cricket and New Zealand cricket grounds. Lovely to have them on board. Remember the name, PGG Wrightson. And there it is, the old saxophone kicks in. So songs with the sax in it. If you do want to text us some songs through, that is the theme very much this morning with the music. We've had somebody texting in saying Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones. Bob Seger, old-time rock and roll. George Thorogood, Bad to the Bone. One of the greats, isn't it? Bad to the Bone. In fact, great song choice. That might just be one of those songs that we might sort of have to put into our finale. We try and choose two songs, and which is the most famous song with the sax in it. We'll have a look at that before one o'clock. Keep your thoughts coming here on double eight double three. But as we alluded to, One Day International number four thousand five hundred and four was played overnight. New Zealand got up to beat Pakistan two one in a three game series. Very good performance all round from the New Zealand batting lineup. We went through that earlier, but also a good bowling performance too from the New Zealand bowlers to reduce. Pakistan on a very good batting wicket to 280 for 9. Tim Southey, 10 overs, no maidens, 3 for 56. Lockie Ferguson, 10 overs, no maidens, 2 for 63. Little expensive. Mitchell Santner, they, boy, they went after Santner this time. He has been tying them up at one end. 10 overs, no maidens, none for 64. Michael Brace will ever miss the consistent. 10 overs, no maidens, 1 for 44. Ish Sodi, 10 overs, no maidens, 1 for 50. Well, what did the New Zealand captain, Kane Williamson, make of this Series victory and that performance in that third way and third one day international. It's been fantastic, uh, you know, being over here and playing. And, um, and the, you mentioned the hotel, and the hotel's been great. Um, food's been great, and, and the people have been brilliant. So um, we've we've had a really enjoyable time. And the cricket's always always tough um, when you play Pakistan, whether it's home or away. So you know you're always up for a, a tough fight on the field, but. Um, on and off the field, it's it's been really really enjoyable. So um, there'll be a few new faces as well going to to India, and and the tours are quite dense, um, lots and lots of cricket, and in, in quite short periods of time. But um, they're really excited at, at that opportunity, and and have really really enjoyed their their time here in Pakistan as well. We all have. Ken, uh, what do you say about the standard of the wickets of the pitches on the, in the all three ODIs? In the ODIs, yeah, I, I think they've been really competitive pitches that have um, been a nice balance, I think, between bat and ball. I, I suppose um, we've seen some that have spun uh, quite a lot um, and some that perhaps haven't. And, uh, you know, as size, you're just trying to adjust um, your games to, to be effective, whether that's with the bat and the ball. And, um, you know, almost reflective of tournament cricket, really, where you play at multiple venues, uh, venues although we've only been here in Karachi we've seen yeah a variety of conditions I think the time of year has, has probably got a bit to do with that but you know seeing um, games all games be quite tight um, bowlers fast bowlers spin bowlers whether that's getting some reverse swing or turn off the pitch and batters having to work hard and, and work through some tough periods it's um, you know it's been different to back home for sure and, and I think really competitive over here then over here and this was a very close game and a very exciting game. Uh, where Pakistan went wrong and you stacked the game from them? Yeah, look, it was uh, very much in the balance, um, you know, I think, at the halfway stage. Uh, I think both teams were, were quite curious to see how um, the pitch would um, play out in the second innings uh, and in the first. And we saw in the last game um, the turn that, that was on display and, and today not so much. And 
Um, and that's great. You have to think on your feet. And I think at the halfway stage, it was probably a, a par total, a, a pretty good one, because you know that you can try and keep things tight and, and make players take tough options. But um, you know, as a as a side, I also think we we probably made a few um, errors that we that we want to um, be better in. Um, but we were put under pressure at different stages, and it was in the balance here right through um, coming into perhaps the last ten overs where probably a couple of wickets down more than we would have liked. Um, but then obviously you, you see a knock like from Glenn Phillips that was you know incredibly special and um, no one really saw it coming, although we know what he can do, um, you know, with the the context of the match being in the balance and to come out and, and play the way he did was, was special and, and, and one of those knocks, yeah. Right, two more after this, guys. One over here and then one down the back. Ken, a series victory in subcontinent must be special for you and your team, and that too before the World Cup in subcontinent. How do you describe this victory? Yeah, it is special. Um, <clears throat> we, we always know whether it's um, home or away how tough the, the cricket is against Pakistan. They're always a very strong side, and um, so to, to come here and, and, and play well as a unit um, throughout the, the series and, and get a series win is you know, a really good effort by the team and um, you know, great opportunity to take a lot of learnings from it as well. The first time here um, in these sorts of conditions where it's been a wee while, I think, as a site where we've been exposed to them. So it was nice to, to do that. Um, and then we'll look forward to, to the Indian series next. So yeah, um, a, a lot of good from it and a lot of learnings as well. Uh, Williamson, Pakistani skipper Babar Azam has often faced criticism for playing slow as the strike rate has always been a talk of the town. Um, he is also considered one of the Fab Four or Fab Five batter. How do you rate him? He's uh, an amazing player. Um, yeah, I mean, every time he's come out, you know, and we've seen obviously a number of innings um, throughout the years, and he's a very, very special, world-class player. So. Um, you know, he's, uh, you know, he can take the game away from you. He can um, play in all formats. Um, he's got all the different gears. Um, and he certainly showed his class throughout throughout this series. And he's going to continue to do it, I've got no doubt, um, in the years to come. So, yeah, a very special player. Hey, Ken, when you lose your uh, wicket uh, at that time, Glenn Phillips is in the dressing room. So what plan you share with uh, him? Um... Yeah, I actually, I think we lost them both quite quickly and he, he just walked out and, um, and did his thing, to be honest. He, he wasn't feeling too good. He, he was um, quite sick, actually. He went off the park and, um, and wasn't too good. That's why he ended up batting a, a little bit lower than he, than he did in the last couple of games. Um, and, yeah, came out and, and saw things very, very clearly and, and, and played an incredible knock. I mean, some of the shots that we saw were were amazing, um, you know, so for us as a team and, you know, with the, the game and the balance to, to see an innings like that is, you know, it's, it's what you, you, you hope for but, but certainly don't expect and um, a, a special knock. Yeah, great performance there from Glenn Phillips. Well done to the Black Caps in Pakistan. They now move on to India. PGG rights and turf, premium suppliers of turf seed and maintenance products to cricket grounds around and across New Zealand. It is 28 minutes away from 11 o'clock. You are listening to SENZ. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll head to number one tennis lane. We'll preview this afternoon's men's singles final of the ASB Classic. Cameron Norrie taking on 
Richard Gasquet of France. Gotta love the old saxophone, eh? Songs with the saxophone in it. Text us here on double eight double three on the Temper Bedpost text machine. And we'll try and play those songs for you between now and one o'clock. But we are going to head now to number one, Tennis Lane, formerly known as Stanley Street. Big day on centre court. It is the final of the men's ASB Classic. Lee Radovanovic, Sky Sport expert commentator, joins us on the programme. Morning to you, Lee. Morning, Mark. Hey, I know we have similar music tapes. You wouldn't believe the 10 years I was in the States had turned into a big country music band. Uh, Look, actually, I was working with Sam Hewitt this week, who was producing, and Sam went on a football scholarship to the States, and um, a soccer scholarship, and he was never a country music fan, roomed with some students who were mad on it. He sort of belittled them initially, and by the end of it, was absolutely well and truly into it. I've got to say, look, I'm not, yeah, I'm partial to a little country music myself. You just got to not listen to the lyrics, because they start singing about the tractors. Yeah, tractors and the old backyard porch and whiskey and and old Ford Utes, I think. <laughs> hey, um, it must be nice to have your shirt off, six-pack out, lying under the sun on centre court, finally. Uh, yeah, I think this is the first day that it's been perfect in the, in the whole two weeks of the ASB class, which will be great because one cool thing that I've been reminded, been away from the tournament for a while, one really cool thing about this event the atmosphere on Centre Court is really excellent. It's one of the better ones around, maybe the best one around for a smaller ATP tournament because the crowd's close and there's people, you know, eating and drinking there. It's a great atmosphere, something perfect day for a, what is fairly close to an ideal final. Yeah, OK. Firstly, let's just go and review yesterday's two semifinals. The first semifinal featured two Frenchmen. Well, unfortunately, they didn't get on court. So what happened there at the end of the first semi-final, the Cameron Norrie, um, the Cameron Norrie Jetson Brooksby match, we found out that uh, Constant Latessian decided to withdraw, um, and that was, I think, we found that out about match point in the first semi-final that he was not going to go and play the semi against uh, Gasquet, and that was because apparently he tweaked his shoulder the night before when he won 7-5 in his third against uh, the Serbian. So he basically decided it was in his best interest to withdraw from the semi to protect himself for the first week of the Australian Open, which pretty disappointing. There was a big crowd there. And if it was me and I was able to play, I would have played the semi-final and tried to win his first tournament rather than protecting himself for the Australian Open where he has no chance of winning. Yeah, oh, just me. I, I'm with you. He's got some momentum coming up against a Frenchman and Richard Gasquet. I mean, sometimes p- playing a fellow countryman who's on the rise, that can sometimes psychologically mess with you a little bit. You've got that momentum. And tournaments are often about, these tournaments are often about this being a stage, isn't it, to, for up-and-coming talent to actually establish themselves. So, yeah, really disappointing for the crowd too. Uh, certainly, I don't think he'll endear himself in the future to future tournaments. On the other side of it, though, we did have the American Jensen Brooksby taking on homegrown New Zealand favourite come Great Britain representative Cameron Norrie. Yeah, it was a really good match, six three six four, but it was a hell of a lot closer than that. And, you know, I had mentioned in commentary that whilst Norrie had played reasonably well, very well, actually, throughout the tournament so far, he'd had another, you felt there was another level for him to go to. How he's been playing during the week is he'll play well in the first set, 
and then he drops his concentration for two or three games early in the second, letting his opponent back in the match. The opponent comes back, wins the second set, then Norrie's got to work really hard to come back and win in the third. That happened in his first two matches, and it happened again yesterday, but he managed to pull himself out of it pretty quickly. He won the first 6-3 with a key break at 3-2, so 6-4 with a key break at 3-2, and then dropped his first service game and was down two love early in the second, and then just kind of worked really hard and fought hard and used his two weapons. First weapon is a serve out wide, and then his forehand down the line. And he started to be really aggressive and sort of punching Brooksby around the court, moving him from side to side. And he was also especially impressive on his return game, really attacking the serve of Brooksby. Brooksby was having to be defensive the entire match, so he was doing more running. He was having more balls under pressure. Mentally, he was under pressure a lot more than Nori was the entire match. He ended up closing out in straight sets. And mm. Apart from two loose games, really good performance. Mm. How do you as a player address that those little mental lapses? What can you do to put some triggers in place to prevent it from happening? Well, I'm sure he would have been doing it because he's aware of it. He would have been going through the process that he would go through when he executes that correctly, but for whatever reason, it's not working for him. Most players, I think, would after they win the first set, they'll be sitting at the change of bed thinking, okay, well played, this worked, that worked, time to take it up another level, and they'll really try and concentrate on the first one or two points of each game just to get off to a little mini lead, putting the pressure on the other guy. But for whatever reason, he hasn't quite been able to do it. So for folks watching the home today, if Norrie wins the first set, keep an eye out for how he performs in the first couple of games of the second just on Cameron Norrie Lee, I mean, you were one of our top, well, one of our best ever juniors, semi final of the Australian Open as a junior, uh, junior Australian Open. Um, did you ever remember Cameron Norrie coming through? Do, do you have any recollection of him when you were playing? Yeah, I had a lot to do with him, actually. He's quite a bit younger than me, uh, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I had a lot to do with him. He was a good junior growing up, usually, I think, the best in New Zealand for his age group. Um, James Greenhow was his main coach and was the guy that always had a lot of belief in him. Uh, I coached him a little bit too and took him to Australia or in Asia or in India probably four or five times when he was, I don't know, 15, 16. From memory, he was always good, but not that good at that age. He was a good couple of levels behind the best players in the world for his age. But he then went to college, spent a few years there, in the gym, getting strong. Yeah, he running, went. He, he went to. He went matches, to really, really learning how to compete. Yeah, he went to Texas Christian University. A number of my friends went on track and field scholarships to that university, and of course, just made the final of the college football final. Oh, nice! Love college football. Yes, I think you could credit college a little bit for just helping them grow physically and mentally, and then learning how to compete because everybody's pretty good in the college system, and, and he would have played a lot of matches, and that would have really hardened him up. Yeah, because I think Sandon Stolley, another one, son of Fred Stolley, also went through the same university. And going back in the day, I remember Brett Stephen went through the university and collegiate system for a while, didn't he, too? So so is is that a genuine pathway now? Because I would have thought that, you know, historically, a lot of players sort of dismissed it. Historically, yes. But if you're smart, you would go down that road. If you're a player from New Zealand or Australia or any sort of smaller country, your number one option would be get a scholarship to the States. Mm. Go there for two or three or four years. You don't even have to finish, but 
take advantage of the resources, the gym, the physio, the doctors, the training partners, the, you know, the traveling, playing on different courts, different surfaces. It's an unbelievable learning curve. It's, unless you're amazingly good at 17, 18, and you've got the financial backing, college is the absolute answer. Mm. And have you had a chance to catch up with Cameron Norrie? Uh, briefly, I have. Yeah, he doesn't get much time because he's got a lot of commitments. But saying that he was feeling really well, I saw him in the gym yesterday um, before the match. I think he's really kind of excited and fired up and maybe slightly nervous mm. to win this tournament because, like all of us, you, you grow up, you see it on TV, and, and you kind of dream about winning it. Mm. Okay, so Richard Gasquet, does he benefit? from having not played a semi-final, or is it to his detriment that perhaps he maybe loses some momentum with a day off? No, I think it's to his benefit for sure. He's 36 and he's got a lot of miles on the clock, so he'd be loving that. He just would have taken a day off yesterday, uh, let the legs loosen up. He's super experienced, been in the top 10, been in the quarterfinals, the semi-finals, the Grand Slams. I think it's great for him. He'll be nice and fresh. And it's actually going to be a really good matchup. I'm looking forward to it. Hmm. Cameron Norrie will use the angles to try and move Gasquet around the court. But Gasquet is a super smart player. And he'll also hit those angles back to him. And just keep an eye out for Gasquet's backhand, Mark. I know we've talked about this over the years. Technically, it's it's a delicious shot. Okay, so we've got that men's final, not before 2 o'clock. First up, we've got a men's double final between Mektich, Pavic, and they'll take on Nathaniel Lamons and Jack Withrow. What can we expect in that doubles? I think we can expect the Croatians to go pretty well and win that one. They were uh, impeccable yesterday, uh, beating the Austrian pair. These guys were number one in the world in 2021. They won Wimbledon in 2021, and they're a really, really good pairing. They're best mates. They seem to have an intuition. They know what each other is doing before they do it. And they're also a left-hand, right-hand combination, which makes it difficult for the returner to find their rhythm because the ball's coming at different angles every other game. So I'd be putting my money on the Croats. Well, Anybody we... with an itch, I'm in. Yeah, OK. Oh, cool. Who's going to win the final, the singles final? I would say Cameron Norrie in three sets would be my guess. I do think it'll be tight. OK. Lee Radovanovic, lovely having you on the programme this week. All the very best for this afternoon. Thank you. 13 minutes away from 11. So there you go. That is the way it is. The Serbians up against the Austrians in the semi in the final of the doubles, set to go at 12 o'clock. And then not before 2 o'clock, it is the final on centre court between the veteran, Richard Gasquet, who's won 15 ATP professional tournaments, made the semi final of four majors. Cameron Norrie, the former Kiwi, ranked as high as 10 in the world, semi finalist at Wimbledon, looking to try and win the tournament that he grew up watching. Should be an absolute beauty. Let's hope it does go the three sets. It is coming up to 12 and a half minutes away from 11. You are listening to SENZ. Coming up after 11, we will head to Piha. We'll get an update on the New Zealand Surfing Championships. The finalists for the women's and the men's have been found. We will also take some time and have a listen to an interview that I actually did with yesterday with one of New Zealand's leading track and field athletes over the last 10 years, Julia Ratcliffe. She's decided to retire in the sport of hammer throw, focus on her professional career, find out a little bit more about her and some of the highlights and maybe some of the more difficult times that she's experienced throughout her athletic career. Keep your texts coming here on the Temper Bed Post text machine, double eight double three. We've had some good uh, songs come in that feature the 
that feature the um, saxophone. So we'll take a break. We'll come back and read some of those texts out. Seven minutes away from midday. Uh, from 11 o'clock, in fact, not midday. We're an hour, not quite an hour ahead of ourselves, but uh, songs with the sax in it. Any Springsteen song someone's texts in, especially Born to Run. Regards saxophone, George Thorogood's song, Bad to the Bone. Simply Red, Smooth Operator. Someone saying, not sure if you played it already, but the NRL season fast approaching. Tina Turner's iconic, Simply the Best, includes some killer saxophone. Love the song, full stop. Best ever NRL promotional song. Surprised that they uh, are still not using it or haven't continued using it. Established in traditions, man. Uh, regards saxophone. Okay, another person just texted in regarding George Thorogood. Hi, Watto. Country music. Good stuff. Well, this is off the little discussion I had with Lee Radovanovich. Heard the joke? What's a country music song sung backwards? I <laughs> like this. My wife comes home and my dog leaves me. Great show. Cheers, Anthony. Morning, Watto. A Crying Shame by Head Like a Hole is a New Zealand classic. Not 100% sure on whether it's got a saxophone, though. Well, we can play Head Like a Hole for you if we can find it. Doesn't need to have a saxophone. It probably does because that's the theme, but you've taken the time, you've taken the effort. Might just do it anyway. Uh, ben Kenning's coming up on the program after 11. He is out at Piha, the New Zealand Surfing Championships, the finals. Billy Stearmond looking to try and win his ninth national title. Billy Stearmond, New Zealand Olympian, along with Al Williams when surfing made its debut at the Tokyo Olympics in 2022. Also, Dale Budge on the programme, we will review Game 2 of the series between the Auckland Tuatara baseball team and the Geelong Korea. Ugly win, but a win all the same. Done at the top of the ninth for the Tuatara against Geelong Korea. What were the talking points? I've got to say, with the Tuatara, it's almost like we're winning ugly. Still not quite there. They need to keep winning, though. Canberra had a victory last night, which means that the Tuatara just the one game ahead of them in that fight for that second playoff spot and just six regular season games remaining for both teams. Coming up to 11 o'clock, don't go away, back with more sports shortly. It is 11 o'clock, you're listening to SCNZ. If you've just joined us, our music theme between now and 1 o'clock are songs that feature the saxophone, a little bit of cold chisel to kick this hour off. We've had some really good people texting in some different songs. It's up to Ben to hunt, to find them and to play them. Isn't that right, Ben? That's correct, Watto. Nailed the... Hit the nail on the head there, that's what I was Can trying to say. Can we come up with two songs that potentially are the greatest songs ever with... Bad to the Bone from George Thorogood's got to be in there, man. Well, we'll put that in there. I think it will be reasonable, but... I think I think the other one you probably do have to have something by Bruce Springsteen in there, but depending on what the the trumpet, uh, sorry, the sax actually has to be part of the reason why the songs become iconic. I would say that, yeah. Like we did the harmonicas last week, and I think we nailed it, didn't we, with the well, two I, songs? Okay, I'd probably put Careless Whisper in there then, to be honest. Okay, well we can possibly put that in. Then George Thorogood and Careless Whisper, if George the, and George, George and George. There you go. Uh, right now. Um, speaking of saxophones, actually there's no relevance at all to the saxophone in Piha. Um, but the weather's great outside and the New Zealand Surfing Championships are about to culminate with the men's and women's finals. Ben Kennings, Mr Surfing, joins us. Morning to you, Ben. 
Morning, what how are you today? Very well, thank you. I'd imagine, mate, you've got your shirt off, you're flexing your six-pack, and you're thinking, <laughs> finally, finally, we have some sun. Yeah. You know what? A little rain shower has just rolled through. Uh, not all sun, but yes, we have, up until now, had a lovely sunny day, and I think this one's going to be short-lived, and the surf is pumping out here as well, so... Great into uh, the 2023 National Championships. Okay, let's talk about wave conditions today. Have we got waves to make this a really legitimate final where there's going to be some consistency and some continuity for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. So the swell did peak yesterday, as expected. So a touch smaller today, but still really good conditions. Still waves at about that one and a half metre. So well overhead for all the surfers. Um, uh, the wind has been offshore up until now. It's going variable, and we expect the sea breeze this afternoon. Surfers actually don't mind that too much. Um, makes the waves a little bit more high performance, and, uh, and I think it'll make a good platform for them. So I think it'll be a legitimate final. Mark. Okay, so who are the four women that have made it through to this year's national final? Yeah, so we have uh, Australian-based Taylor Green, a young 17-year-old surfer, um, the youngest of the finalists, 11-year-old Lola Groove from Pawanui, uh, Natasha Goldsbury, uh, an 18-year-old from Taranaki, and 17-year-old Pia Rogers from Fungamata. So very young lineup of surfers. Um, none of them have an Open Women's National title, so going to be crowning one of them for the first time. And uh, they're about an hour and a half away. Okay, so based on the four that have got through, your gut feeling, who who maybe goes in here as, as the favourite? For me, it will be Taylor Green. Uh, she's looked really strong. Um, she's taken down some of the big names on her way through to the finals. Um, very nice young girl that um, sniffs a lot over in Australia, over here with her family at the moment, and... Um, Probably going to be, be my pick, to be honest. Okay, so, and how does the final play out? Just for people that are not familiar with surfing, how do you have a surfing final? Yep, so there's four ladies in the final. There's 25 minutes for them to go out, and they can catch as many waves as they want. Their best two scores uh, during that time will be tallied towards their overall total. Each wave scored out of 10, um, <clears throat> so if they're getting inside that sort of 8 to 10 point range for each, uh, wave that's in the excellent category and that's what we'll be looking for. So just the two best waves and what happens if they're tied at the end of it? Oh uh, if they're tied it goes to best one wave and if they're still tied it goes best uh, back to best three four five and six. Okay brilliant now um, we then move on to the men's we've got Billy Stearman who sits on eight national titles we've got um, Pyrata Reed there who has won this title previously he's a Piha local who are the other two finalists that will join them? Yeah, so we've got a young surfer from Taranaki, uh, Kalani Louis, who was in the New Zealand team last year for the juniors. He's only 17 years old. Um, a bit of a surprise package, although everyone does know how well he surfs. So uh, really cool to see him make it. He surfed uh, brilliantly yesterday in the semi-finals, And also uh, Piha, Piha local, Dune Kennings, uh, joins up with his friend Elliot Pairata-Reed, so the two local guys in this one. Yeah, and now he's he's a relation of yours, I understand. Yeah, yeah, he's my nephew, so uh, grew up surfing with him, or he's he's been better than me for a long time, so um, try and keep up, though, you know. Yeah. Now, what about momentum heading into this? If you were to go back into the semi-finals, who who, who surfed the best yesterday? Who who's, who who brings the momentum in? Yeah, so um, 
Billy Stearman top scores uh, in the semi-finals. Uh, his score was in excess of uh, 18 points. He had two nine-point rides. Um, he has been the standout server. And Elliot Parata reed so has a lot of international experience. His hometown knowledge of the wave uh, is probably unrivaled. And he's just a really solid surfer. So when that surf gets a bit bigger, um, he's always one to watch. In fact, when it's smaller as well, he's an amazing surfer. But I think his power comes into comes into the equation when the surf gets decent size. And is the template exactly the same for the men in terms of determining our national champion? Do they surf for the same amount? Is it the same amount of waves that are judged? Yeah. Yep. Same time, same amount of waves, um, and same judging criteria. So. Same across the board for all the divisions. Is there prize money up for grabs, Ben? No prize money, but what we do have, Mark, is a new uh, New Zealand team qualification process that was put in place at the end of last year, Mm -hmm. and the national champion is, I think, the third quota option, so potential for the national champion to go straight into the New Zealand team, so... Uh, that's created a little extra pressure on a lot of surfers this week. And what does it mean to make the New Zealand team? Where does the New Zealand team end up competing? Yeah, so this year, we so every year we go to the World Surfing Games. This year it's being held in El Salvador at the end of May, and that is the first Olympic qualifier for our surfers. So um, it's the continental qualifiers. We aim to have uh, the top Oceania surfer, uh, male and female, and in that event, and if they can be inside the top thirty of that event, then they qualify for the Olympics. Okay, so it really is okay. a big stepping stone. It just gets your foot in the door to then get your foot in the door to then try and get yourself to the Olympics. I've been to maybe people that have just tuned in now, just again those start times for the women's final and then the men's final. Of course, destination is Piha, just on West Auckland's. Uh... Yeah, qu- quarter past one for the open women's and. 40 past uh, one for the open men's. At the moment, we've got a bunch of pre- preliminary ones. Men's longboards out in the water at the moment, and we're going back into a whole bunch of junior divisions from under 14, 16s, and 18s, then into the two premier divisions. Mm. All right, Ben. Well, look, I appreciate the updates throughout the week. We, I'm back on here on Monday, so we might do just a little bit of a wrap on Monday, just of the entire week and all the different winners. But look, all the very best for this afternoon, and thank you for updating us and providing some uh, insight into the sport of surfing. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mike. Really appreciate being on the show. Eight and a half minutes after 11, you're listening to SENZ. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to play an interview that I did with Billy Stearman earlier in the week as he seeks to win his ninth New Zealand surfing title. You're listening to SENZ. When you think of Bruce Springsteen, you think of the E Street Band, you always think of the saxophone, don't you? Another absolute beauty. Keep your texts coming on the bedpost temper text machine. Temper and bedpost range of mattresses, adjustable bases, adapt to the exact shape of your body so you can put your head, feet up, in comfort. We have been talking surfing because the New Zealand Surfing Championships are on at Piha earlier in the week. I caught up with eight-time New Zealand Surfing Champion Olympian from 2022, Billy Stearman. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. How's the surf this morning, big guy? Where have you been? Pretty fun. Um, did a little trip up north to the east coast. Um, can't say where I went, but uh, no, nah, we, we just got on the road. Uh, me and Maddie Scorins just hit the road early and uh, went east. It's offshore, quite big. It was quite fun. Now, Matt's your coach. Yes, he, was, he came to the Olympics with me. 
He's, 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 he's a nice man. Um, now, OK, so Billy, you say that you can't tell us where you go. What is it with you surfers in your private little breaks that you have and your private little patches of water? It's very tribal, isn't it? It's... Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, every little town's got their own localism and um, the own locals that go there every time. So, um, you know, obviously I'm not from up north, so, um, yeah, try and keep it as tight as I can and... Um, to myself and then kind of do my little program. Now, National Surf Champs are on in Piha. You've won this title eight times. Is there still a desire to win nine? Is it still as important winning this one as it was winning your first? Yeah, for sure. Obviously, the first one's always um, a big one to achieve. But, um, yeah, everyone since has been amazing for me. Um, it's always a really good way to start the year off for me. I, I feel like I get a lot of momentum off it and um, it gets the kind of the ball rolling and um, I love catching up with friends and family during the week and the competition's um, getting more fierce every year. So, um, yeah, it's always a good achievement for me to start the year with the national title. And, uh, yeah, I want to get as many as I can. I want to get the most ever and um, keep on going until I can't anymore. Hmm. Now, as I said, you've won eight. You've won four of those at Piha, so you are very familiar with the conditions. What is it about Piha that you like? What is it about the Piha wave that suits your style of surfing? Um... I guess it's a left-handed. Growing up in Raglan, I, I obviously go left quite often, so um, the bank at Piha is normally a left just off the bar, off the rocks there, so um, I like the grunt of the West Coast as well. Um, but I also have a good little house I stay at at CPLs. Um, every time I come in here, I've got my own little room downstairs, and um, my routine's kind of similar every time. So, um, yeah, I feel real comfortable out at Piha, and, and I enjoy my week out there. Uh, Billy, with now surfing at the Olympic Games and I guess the innovations of soft top boards and making it more accessible, it's amazing just how big the surfing community is, even if you're just a part-timer or just at a recreational level. Are you noticing that flowing through to the elite level? Is there greater depth now here in New Zealand starting to emerge? Yeah, for sure. I think with the Olympics, it kind of opens up um, more achievements for the younger people, um, younger younger kids, um, something to strive for other than... uh, um, world tour um but yeah it's obviously the, there's a lot more eyes on it especially with the olympics and um brought in to spectators and, and kind of you know gets eyes on tv and and around the globe so um yeah i think it's amazing for the sport and i can't wait to see uh, what comes out of new zealand in the, in the years to come I mean, I was lucky and privileged enough to fly up to Tokyo with you when you made your debut at the Olympics, um, and I think we have spoken since. But just for our audience out there, how how, how cool was that experience for you? Um, I mean, clearly there are some major sporting events, surfing events around the world, the likes of pipe. Um, you know, you've got bowels, but the Olympic experience. Put that in context. Yeah, it was t- uh, it was an amazing experience. Like, obviously, we've never done anything like that. Um, it was just a crazy uh, feeling to be a part of the Team New Zealand. Uh, us as surfers, we're just, um, you know, in an individual sport, we're kind of out there doing it by ourselves, but to be a part of that Team New Zealand and that team spirit and vibe was just so cool, um, and they looked after us really well. The whole team was like, because surfing was kind of a new, exciting sport there, so it was, uh, you know, we were kind of walking around the village and like high-fiving a few people that kind of knew who we were there and um, just enjoying the whole moment, but... Yeah, the whole lead-up to the Olympics was uh, cool for me. Also, you know, I was training and training alongside some really good people and um, I felt fit and healthy, so I'm kind of, you know, taking that onto this year as well. And, um, yeah, the Olympic experience was amazing. I, you know, I can't fault it at all. Look, I mean, there are some pretty cool sports at the Olympics, but there is nothing cooler than surfing. Were you the cool kids in the village? 
yeah, yeah. It was pretty, uh, pretty surreal, honestly, because you know there's not many of us surfers over there, um, and of me being the only male from New Zealand, it was quite obvious uh, who we were and where we were from. So um, we had random athletes coming up to us and like you know saying, "Hey, Billy, like good to see you over here. Well done," and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, we felt pretty special at the, at the games, and obviously it was our first time, so we were soaking it all up, all the media and um, all the attention, and yeah, it was, just, it was an awesome experience all around. Yeah, the surf in Japan, I mean, it was marginal, it was okay. It's going to be very different in Paris because it's actually going to be stationed Tahiti on the famous Chaopu wave. Uh, likes of uh, Ricardo Christie also looking to try and qualify, so I'd imagine qualification's not going to be that easy. But um, how big a change will that be if you do get there from what you saw in Japan in terms of the wave? Um, yeah, it's going to be a different uh, preparation for sure. Um, the whole qualification procedure is pretty similar. Um, the way we qualified through um, Japan and through Tokyo uh, a few years back now is, is pretty similar to what we're going to do this year and next year. So um, my lead-up is going to be pretty similar to previous Olympics. But, um, yeah, obviously, hopefully once I make that team, um, that selection, I'll be able to go to Tahiti and, and get some experience over there because I've never been over there. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be planning a few trips over to Tahiti and taking a few people and, um, yeah, trying out different equipment and stuff like that. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, just looking, I mean, most people look at that Chaopu wave in Tahiti and just see it as this absolute monster where you basically just get in and then just hang on and hold on and hope to hell you don't get evaporated on the reef. Is it actually a break you can genuinely surf? I I mean, how would they score a wave like that? Um, Yeah, it's definitely different. Like I said, I've never been there, so... Um, and I, I, I'm pretty sure not many waves around the world will be similar to that wave. So, um, yeah, it looks like a short, sharp and, and very dangerous wave. And obviously it's really powerful and um, a lot of people get hurt there. And um, But at the same time, you, you can get the best wave of your life and, um, you know, things can change after that. So I'm looking forward to the challenge and um, the whole preparation to it all. And, and hopefully I'll get a few trips over there so I can... You know, learn the wave a bit more and, and practice a bit more. Okay, Billy, let's just get back to the national championships at Piha. Uh, a lot of easterlies, um, which makes it offshore. I know the surf out at um, Muriwai, just north of Piha, has been good. Um, seems to be building throughout the week. What's the surf like at Piha this week? Yeah, it's been actually pretty good. The start of the event was nice and like two or three foot offshore clean conditions for everyone. There's so many divisions out at the nationals, so it kind of covered all the bases. Um, and I think it's picking up a bit today and looking really good for the next three days. Um, I've got quarterfinals on Friday, quarterfinals and semifinals, and then finals day on Saturday. So um, it's looking looking like a good week of uh, competition. Yeah, you narrowly lost last year's national championships to Daniel Farr. You've got the likes of Elliot pirata Reed. Who are some of the other surfers that are looking to challenge you? Yeah, there's a couple uh, younger guys coming up. A guy called Cora um, from Raglan. Uh, Timmy O'Connor, one of my good friends, is uh, home from Bali actually as well. So uh, a few of my mates still in the contest, so it's uh, a few rivalries there. But um, I always just stick to my plan. I I don't really worry about what uh, everyone else is up to. And, um, yeah, I just stick to my routine and kind of control what I control and, uh, yeah, hopefully make that final. And if you lose, do you sack Matt Scorringe? (laughs) He's not not actually in my corner. Um, He came to Tokyo with me. Um, and obviously we'll work together before, but um, 
yeah, I'm kind of just on my own program at the moment, but um, he's actually in the car with me right now, giving me a few tips on the way on the way back from the surf. <laughs> I, I, I mean, he, he's not a bad surfer in his own right. Is he out there competing? Yeah, he goes all right. He actually went in the event. Uh, I don't think he's competed in a few years, so it was good to see him in the event. And um, yeah, he got we got a few waves this morning. He's still ripping, so. Um, yeah, it's good to have him, you know, by my side and, and, and learning off him. Have they built that statue of you yet in Raglan? I think we talked about it last time we spoke. <laughs> Not yet. I, uh, I came home to a welcome home, Billy, but um, no statue just yet. That's terrible. We might have to sort of get a bit of a campaign going here on SENZ. Now, look, what time are you in action on Friday and Saturday? We're going to try and encourage people to get out to Pihar and watch it because, I mean, you guys are genuinely yeah. world-class. I mean, you're Olympians. You're the best in this country. It's a sport that's grown. It's a huge community. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I think where the open men's are on around lunchtime on Friday. Sure. Um, so quarterfinals and semifinals will be on, you know, from lunchtime onwards. And then I presume it'll be around 2 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, the finals will be. Okay. And how many surfers in a heat? Uh, there's four surfers in a heat, um, two progress through each heat, and then obviously, you know, champion in the final. And what's the window? 30 minutes, is it? It's 20-minute heats, best 12 waves at the mo- at the moment, and then I think if you make the final, it's 25-minute final with best uh, total 15 waves and best two waves count. Well, Billy Stearman, all the very best. Fingers crossed you can get number nine across the line. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time on the programme, the great Billy Stearman there. Twenty-nine minutes after eleven, songs with the saxophone in them is the theme. Text us here on the Temper Bed Post text machine, double eight double three. What was that one, Ben? Oh, that was Whitney. That's correct. So that's the bit. You have the bit of saxophone, and then it then it has the little bit before it gets into the very iconic moment of the song. Which I don't think the. Sax sells that song though, is it? It's not the sax that makes that song. It's the no, powerful. It's, it's that bit where it says, "I will always love you." Yeah, which makes that song. So we need to get it down to two, where we actually think the saxophone is part of the reason why the song, or predominantly the reason, it grabs people's attention and gives that song its uniqueness. Stunning song, stunning vocal. It was actually Kevin Costner who put her onto this song. Oh, really? Yeah, in the movie oh, wow. The Bodyguard. And he actually went back in and said, look, this is an old song. I think you could redo something with it. And she had to play around with it and came up with this. There you go, Kevin Costner. Uh, 11.30. Um, what we're going to bring you now is that Julia Ratcliffe, one of New Zealand's greatest track and field or field athletes, has decided to retire at the age of 29, won a Commonwealth Games gold and... 2018, I was lucky enough to actually call it in the stadium that night. And then Silver this year, back in 2000 and, or last year I should say, she won Silver last year in Birmingham. She's also competed at the Olympic Games. Now, we got her on the programme yesterday very late in the piece. I'm not sure if the interview went to air or not. 
Um, so I do want to bring it back to you. It's almost part of our Legends Hour. I think it's worth a second play. Um, but we did come in with an introduction with some um, highlights from last year's Commonwealth Games. And so that is the reason for the first answer that she does give. Yes, Julia Ratcliffe, uh, remarkable career. I was lucky enough to call her gold medal actually in the Gold Coast back in 2018. Glenn Lama this year with the call in Birmingham. She has announced her retirement at 29 years of age. Julia joins us on the programme. Hi, Julia. Kia ora, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Well, firstly, congratulations on a remarkable track and field career. Thank you so much. Got all the fields listening to that uh, commentary. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I was there actually. I was lucky enough to be there in the stadium when you won gold in 2018. I guess you probably took everybody by surprise a little bit. Did you take yourself by surprise? Yeah, I think so at that one. I wasn't expected to win the gold. So, um, no, it was quite quite a good little surprise. Okay. How did you decide to take up hammer throwing? It's not like we've necessarily got a great legacy in the sport in this country. I mean, there are, I think, 22 or 23 different sports that make up the track and field program. Uh, my dad got me into it, actually. He was an, uh, a high school PE teacher and coached some athletics with the high school kids after school when he was a teacher. And then when he had his own kids, uh, athletics was what we got to do, too. But turns out that I was not very good at running um, or jumping. Gravity's not my friend. So um, the hammer throw it was. We got into the throws and, um, yeah, don't really have long long arms or big hands either. So the hammer throw was really the only mm. thing left. <laughs> I guess historically, rightly or wrongly, it might be a bit of a negative stereotype. People tend to look at hammer throwers as being just very, very large people and therefore that gave them the advantage. But it's anything but, isn't it? I mean, it's all about core, it's all about power, um, so much supplementary work done. What makes a good hammer thrower? Oh, definitely explosive power is what makes a good hammer thrower. Um, it does help to have long levers, like long arms, which I don't particularly have, but it's a rotational sport, so if you can spin around in circles really fast, um, you're going to be a good thrower. Absolutely. So when you do look back, I mean, I was just reading through your profile here. I mean, you are genuinely an overachiever. You were head girl of Waikato Diocesan. You were ducks in your final year at school. You got a scholarship. You went to Princeton University. You graduated with a Bachelor of Arts with a major in economics and a certificate in political, econo- uh, in political economy. I mean, is, is balance, is that important? Is that what you think has allowed you to fulfil your potential, having that balance? Yeah, definitely. I've always said that I'm happier when I'm busier and I've got a varied um, interest going on in my life. So, you know, I think it's just definitely been a key to key to my success. Um, I'm not sure I could be a full-time athlete and not do anything else. I think um, I'd get a bit get a bit crazy kind of having only training to think about and how tired you are. It definitely helps me take my mind off things if I've got other things to go to. Mm. So when you do look back over your career, um, what do you – were the highlights? What have been the highlights? I mean, clearly the Commonwealth Games outside of that, perhaps? Yeah, I think competing at the Olympics um, was pretty cool. It was definitely a highlight for me and my dad. Um, I was really lucky because obviously there were no spectators in Tokyo, um, that I was one of the few people that had some family in the stands, um, also my coach, obviously, but it, it was really special to have, have him there and um, actually put out a really outstanding performance um, at the highest level. Um, so that was probably my career highlight. So why retirement now? I mean, you're still only 29 years of age. Is an argument that a lot of uh, field throwers really only start to hit their peak when they get into their early 30s. Yeah, I think for me, um, I've competed at all the top events now and looking at what other people are throwing, you know, I think I could kind of 
chip away at that and get a bit closer, but um, I know what it takes to get there and I know what it would take to get even further. Um, and for me, I think um, just looking forward and looking ahead and what else um, life has in store for me, I think um, for me that trade-off starting to kind of tip too far into the um, it's not worth it for me anymore um, boundary. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah. So I leave the sport with um, definitely a full heart and really still love the sport. It's not for, for lack of love of the sport, but just time for other things for me. And because of your success, are we seeing more young girls pick up the hammer? Are we seeing a bit of depth now coming through the junior ranks? Yeah, definitely. It's been so cool to see. Like, just the fact that we had three of us at the Commonwealth Games was um, awesome. And yeah, definitely high school hammers picked up a lot. Um, it, yeah, it's really cool to see, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I was also just reading, I, I see in 2014 you won the NCAA Hammer Throw title. Now, you became Princeton University, and it's one of the most famous universities in the world. You became the first female track and field NCAA champion out of there. Uh, what, what did that mean to you at the time, and what does that now mean when, when you look back and reflect? Well, yeah, obviously, as you said, Princeton's a very well-known university, and um, I guess to be able to add a bit of history to that legacy um, was really special. I, I couldn't really believe that I was kind of the first ever uh, female track and field athlete to to bring home an NCAA title for them. So um, that was really special, actually. Mm. Are you somebody, do, do you put your medals out on display? Do mum and dad have them? Or are you just somebody that sort of puts them in the sock drawer and is quite sort of, you know, it's a bit sort of blasé about it all? Oh, probably a bit blasé, but I do try and actually take them out as much as I can, like if I can go and talk to schools and things like that, um, just to share them with people, because it's something that you've achieved, and, and I certainly haven't got there by myself, and it's really cool. I find that's mm. a good way of giving back. It's kind of um, trying to share them with people. Um, it's not necessarily put them on display in the house, but um, yeah, it's just go and share them with people, go and speak to corporate groups and things like that. So um, yeah, it's cool. It's good to go out and share your story. I think that's when you get to inspire people. Now you've retired, does that mean Dad Dave retires as well? And how's he coping with your retirement? Oh, he's awesome. He's um, he's always looking forward to the next thing. So um, he's currently, he goes, he's a mad cyclist. So goes on um, lots of bike rides with his little riding group a um, couple of days a week. Moses Lawns, um, as he's famous for, and uh, he's recently taken up stamp collecting again. So um, he's got lots of little projects to keep keep him busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of you, can you see yourself moving perhaps into the future in the coaching space? Is coaching that something that interests you outside of clearly what you're doing in the business world? Oh, a few people have asked me that, and I keep saying that I'm not sure I can live up to Dave's legacy. Um, you know, like I've seen how much it takes to be an outstanding coach. And obviously, you don't have to coach athletes to the Olympic level, but um, I just know how much of a commitment it is to do a good job at it. And so I think um, if I was going to step into that, I'd, I'd need to have quite a bit more time on my hands, I think. So not at this stage, but, um, you know, never say never. Ten years from now, and sometimes it takes ten years to people to truly appreciate an athlete that we've had or for a sport to recognise a particular era. What do you think your legacy will be? Oh, I'm, I guess I've come through with some pretty outstanding throwers and I'm by no, mean leading, by no means leading the pack, but just to have thrown along the likes of Dame Val, Tom Walsh, Jack O'Gill, Maddie Wishy, um, yeah, it's, it's just a really awesome time for throws in New Zealand. Um, and so, yeah, just to have been part of that um, has been mm. pretty epic. Yeah, look, you sound like you're, you're really smart. You've transitioned nicely from athlete into the workplace and sometimes that can be really hard. You, you lose your sort of sense of self-worth, your identity. Do you feel like you're going to need to take up something else to fill this void or are you fairly happy with the way things are at at the moment? 
Oh, I often get um, upheld as like, you know, this example of, oh, she's got a full-time job and she trains as well to a high level um, and it's not sustainable, is all I can say. Um, so it's nice to have a bit of time back. to come. I'm working 40 hours a week still, um, so there's not actually a huge amount of free time. Um, but, yeah, no, nah, um, I don't think I'll, I'll have trouble filling, filling gaps. Got lots of weddings coming up, lots of little events like that that I've um, missed out on over the years, so it's nice to be able to say yes to a few of those things. Well, Julia Ratcliffe, congratulations on your career and thank you for taking the time and joining us here on SCNZ. Much appreciated. Not a problem. Thanks so much. Great, Julia Ratcliffe. Yeah, it was. Uh, I always I remember that night vividly at the uh, Gold Coast, sitting there doing track and field, and um, of what they call the integrated feed, which means that you have to do a little bit of everything. So they might have the ten thousand meters on, and then they'll cut to a field event, and then they'll come back to the ten thousand meters. They might even say, "Look, this is a pre-record. This was done a couple of minutes ago. These two jumpers are hitting a certain height." Throw back to them, and then they sort of, you know, come back and see the rest of the ten thousand meters out. It's quite, it's quite a difficult um, commentary to do actually, because you're just jumping from one set of notes to the other, and across a whole lot of different sports. Um, and then often they'll also just have um, a channel running, which will just focus purely on the one field event that is going. And so I do remember Julia Ratcliffe uh, winning that gold medal in Gold Coast in two thousand eighteen. Somewhat of a bit of an upset. Um, but a great moment for New Zealand track and field. We do wish her the very best in the future. One of the hardest things with athletes retiring is trying to substitute or trying to often give up your sense of self-worth. You know, it's what's defined you for so long. It's been that point of difference amongst your peer group. And it's a pretty cool lifestyle. And that's why so many athletes, when it's rugby, rugby league, struggle a little bit with their mental health once they do give up the sport because how do they replicate it? What do they substitute it with? And I I was always struggling to put my finger on it because I suffered from it a little bit myself. I mean, I didn't reach any great heights, but I did train full-time as an athlete for a long time and loved every minute of it. And then you're suddenly not sure what to do with yourself. And... It was a New Zealand female cyclist, her name Rushley Buchanan. And I think Rushley's won four New Zealand women's road cycling titles. And she retired, I think, from track cycling after the Tokyo Olympics in cycling. And she talked a little bit about what I just mentioned, what do you do with yourself? And she summed it up. She said, the biggest fear you have is, is my life going forward ever going to be as exciting as it has been? And it is exciting being a full-time athlete. And so you've got to make sure that you've got family, you've got to make sure that you've got other interests. And if you're a full-time athlete, make sure you do have some balance. A couple of reasons for that. If you're having a bad day and you've got nothing else, then life sucks. And if you're an endurance athlete particularly, you are going to have a lot of bad days. The harder you train, the more bad days you're going to have. If you're a runner, weight-bearing sport, you put a whole lot of days back to back of big miles, hard workouts, you're going to have some tough days. You wake up some days and you think it's going to go well and it doesn't. And you go home and go, oh, and you're a bit down. And if you've got nothing else to channel your energies into, it will get on top of you. Where if you've got a part-time job or you're in a relationship or you're studying at university part-time or whatever it is, you can sort of go, well, I did the session, didn't go that well. Look, I've, I've banked it anyway. I'll go and now put my energies into these other things, which I've got to get done. Takes your mind off it. Your focus is somewhere else. You hope that the next day you wake up and the next session you have ends up being a really, really good session. And and you're able to work through it. 
I always say too, and I'm just going off on a little bit of a tangent, almost a bit of a coaching spiel here, but if you are training for something and you're starting to train hard for it and you're training for your first marathon or a half marathon or a triathlon or open water swim or whatever it might be, hang on to your good days. And you might have one good day where you feel bulletproof, one in every seven days, one in every 10 days, but hang on to it because you know it's in there. You couldn't have had it unless you're capable of doing it. When you start to drop your miles, start to have a few more days of recovery, start to freshen up closer to your race, you start to have some more good days. So don't get too caught up in your bad days. Remember your good days. Remember, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Okay? Anyway, that's just my little coaching spell for this morning. Coaching with Watto one-on-one. It is 17 minutes away from midday. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about our music theme that is songs with saxophones in it and some of the texts that have come in. We were out with playing some of those songs. Ben Francis putting the music collection together this morning. It is 16 and a half minutes away from midday. Baker Street, Jerry Rafferty, 1978. One of the great songs with the sax in it. Is it the most iconic song with the sax in it? We'll come down to two, maybe three songs, and before one o'clock, we will try and figure out which song we believe is the most iconic, a song made famous predominantly because of the instrumental of the saxophone. Last week we did it based on the instrumental of the harmonica. Uh, Ben, lots of texts have come in, my good man. Um, A nice mix too. You don't realise how many songs actually out there that you are familiar with actually have a saxophone in it. Sorry, what I missed there. I was putting my headphones on. I was just saying, we've had a lot of texts come in, people with songs with saxophones, and you you suddenly realise how familiar a lot of these songs are, and you actually haven't really thought too much about the sax in them. Yeah, but I think that comes down to what you were touching on before, that lots of it will be down to songs where the saxophone is the iconic moment, as in the song we played before, I Will Always Love You. It's more known for that that amazing mm. I Will Always Love You bit. It's not known for a saxophone being in there. Yeah. So I think that's probably what lots of it comes down to. I, I want to do the bad to the bone from... Um, yeah, we've got that ready. Because I think that is absolutely iconic. And I reckon we we said during the week when we did the theme on songs with names, we felt that probably the most iconic New Zealand song would probably be Victoria. Correct. Um, from the exponents, someone's just texting in here, and they might be right. The most iconic New Zealand song. They're not just they're not referring to as New Zealand, but that supergroove can't get enough. Absolutely one of the most iconic New Zealand songs, and certainly probably the most iconic New Zealand song with a saxophone in it. Uh, someone's Greg here. A favourite back in the 80s was Super Tramp, but unsure if they used trumpet and sax as well. Okay, so we'll do a little bit of a uh, we'll do a bit of a search on that one. Any any others, Ben? Well, lots of them have come out. Yeah, we've said, you know, Bad to the Bone, uh, Jungle Land is before I played by Bruce Springsteen, but I think Born to Run is probably the more yeah. well-known. I, I think Born to Run is probably going to come into the discussion around 
one of the great saxophone songs, isn't it? Yeah, but when I was doing my research, everyone was saying that the Jungle Land song by Bruce Springsteen has the more iconic saxophone, but it's not. Yeah, a, but I think well you've got known. to be a pure Bruce Springsteen fan to appreciate it. Probably. And I think what we're just looking at sort of the broad appeal, people on the street going, oh, I know that song and I'm familiar with the saxophone in it. Yeah, um, you know, I've got, we've got simply the best down here as well. Another one, Tina Turner. Yeah, I can't remember the sax in that. Well, I think that's because we hear often the version with Jimmy Barnes. Yeah. So, And that version does not have the saxophone in it, whilst the original version with just Tina Turner in it does. I think the Supergroove is a classic Kiwi song. I don't think there is a bigger song with a sax in it than Supergroove. They were very, very iconic in the 1990s. Um, very, very cool band indeed. But 1990s it was, wasn't it? Early I saw them 2000s. live once. Yeah, very cool. Before Cold Chisel, funnily enough. Yeah. Oh, okay, nice. So they were opening for them. Yep, that was the opening act. Uh, it was at the Villa Marie Winery out in Manukau. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, double eight double three is the temper by temper bedpost text machine. Feel free to continue to let us know what songs you think are iconic that do feature a saxophone in them. And we will try and play them for you between 12 and 1 o'clock this afternoon. Um, yeah, no, look, I, I've got to say I'm keen to go back and be reminded again of the Supergroove song. I do want to hear George Thorogood's Bad to the Bone. I think that the song that we just, Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street, by a lot of the music purists, would probably put that right up there. Just trying to sort of think of some others that have come through. Brown Sugar from the Rolling Stones, huge song. Is it defined, though, by the saxophone? That is the key question. What's that? Oh, okay, we've got somebody on the phone, I think. Bazza. Bazza from Nelson's phoning through. Anyway, I'm not sure whether Bazza wants to have a chat to us or not. Uh, look, coming up after 12 o'clock, Dale Budge on the programme, we will talk the Auckland Tuatara. They're in Geelong at the moment, taking on Geelong Korea, which is predominantly a Korean team um, in terms of developing young talent who play professional baseball in Korea. Tuatara got up with the win yesterday, but they're winning ugly. Two games left in the series. Third game, six o'clock tonight. There will be a fourth game tomorrow, and then the Tuatara will return home for a home series starting Friday next week against the Brisbane Bandits. Brisbane have already qualified for the playoffs, have won the Northeast Division, and will have home advantage throughout the playoffs because of their best record. Hopefully, when they come to Auckland, it might be an opportunity for them to give some of their wider squad a bit of an opportunity, knowing that they've pretty much wrapped up the domestic season. So we'll talk some baseball. We'll also do some English Premier League football too. Big weekend of football. We've got the North London derby between Spurs and Arsenal. We've got the Manchester City derby between Manchester United and Manchester City. Manchester City coming off the back of a loss against Southampton. 
Manchester United just continue to march on almost underneath the radar. Everyone's written them off. Don't write them off just yet. It hurts me to say that being a Liverpool fan. Liverpool, well, they're away to Brighton. Not an easy game either. Another text that's just come in regarding the sacks. Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. Great sax line at the end of the song. That comes from Mike. Don't believe any more. Ice House. Anything by UB40. Hey guys, has to be The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry from Beverly Hills Cop. Cool song too. Yeah, actually, when you say that song, play it in my head, I can hear the sax. We will do that. Definitely do that. The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry between 12 and 1. Doesn't it, Sam? I know you're getting Dale Budge up to talk some baseball, but it's got to be. George Thorogood, bad to the bone in terms of a great song with a sax in it. In terms of just sort of global and generic appeal, there might be songs that are considered greater. There might be songs that might be considered that have got greater artistry by perhaps greater artists. But I think right across the board, I'm not sure there is a better song than this one. I mean, the whole thing's a sax, isn't it, Ben? Probably. Well, that's not a good answer. I need more out of you than that, big guy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do a lot of uh, multitasking at the moment, Watto. God, you sound like my wife making excuses, my good man. It's not, it's not, it's not an excuse when it's fact. <laughs> All right, let's uh, talk some baseball because the Tuatara were in action yesterday in Geelong, the second game. They had a win the night before. A record scoring win for the club in its short franchise, beating the, beating the Geelong Korean team in the first game 16-7. Yesterday, it was taking them on in Game 2, must-win series if they're to edge out the Canberra Cavalry and be the second team in the North East Division to qualify for the playoffs. They ended up winning this game 8-7, but they had to do it in the top of the ninth. Mr Baseball himself, Dale Budge, joins us on the programme. Hi, Dale. Hey, what are you going? Yeah, good. I mean, heart-stopping stuff last night. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I expected us to probably win this game comfortably, but it didn't go that way with the Geelong Korea jumping out to a three-run-to-nothing lead after the bottom of the third. Yeah, no, Geelong made a really good start. Um, their starting pitcher lefty, very heavy diet of curveballs, and the Tuatara hitters didn't seem to be able to adjust, just couldn't find a way to sit back on the on the off-speed stuff. And... Um, and they were good enough to take uh, their opportunities that uh, the Tuatara pitching offered up. So, yeah, 3-0 until the midway point. Then all of a sudden the Tuatara came rolling back and you thought, oh, they've, they've got this. They blew it out. Um, but, you know, again, we saw um, Geelong come come back at them. Uh, Chase Walter, uncharacteristic. He's had a couple of uh, rough outings now. His last two, two uh, appearances have not been as smooth as they had been right throughout the course of the season and um, the Geelong side was able to take the lead and you thought, hmm, they might be in a position to close this out. Um, you touched on it, it was heart-stopping stuff at the end because uh, Tuatara got one run back, they were down by two going into the final uh, top of the ninth inning and got one back and then Matt Feinstein, who represented the last out for the Tuatara, popped one up in the infield and you thought, ah, that's it, game over, any one of five players can take this and Poor third baseman for Geelong made the call and got under it and then got a bit wobbly and it sort of just tracked back on him a wee bit and missed it altogether. Tying run scores and the go-ahead run managed to find himself standing on third base and then with the very next at bat, a pass ball saw the Tuatara get another freebie and take the lead. And uh, they were good enough to hang on to it at the bottom of the ninth and 
close it out. So, yeah, wins in games one and two of the series. That's exactly what the doctor ordered. Not sure it was exactly by design, but after uh, the way they've been playing for the last three weeks, you're taking. Yeah, yeah, I was saying we're winning ugly though, aren't we? I mean, Wei Chun Wing, uh, would they be happy with that? Um, five innings pitched, gave up nine hits, three runs, ERA of 3.48. It was, look, it's passable, it's serviceable for sure, but not what he had been throwing over the course of the season. He'd been much more tidy than that. There were just a few occasions where uh, he, he let a, a hitter off the hook or you know, he was falling behind early in, in the count, which he hasn't done throughout the course of the season. So really had to battle. Um, you know, the, the TK side have some, some good pop in their bats. You know, they're a pretty handy offensive side. They are not the best team with the ball. You know, they're not a great pitching outfit. Their starters are okay, but the bullpen looks a little shaky and it's two nights in a row that the bullpen really has, you know, Tuatara have taken to the bullpen and, and um, you know, had some success late in games. And that might be the key to this, is, is keeping keeping with uh, the Geelong starters, trying to knock them out early and get into that bullpen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so far, so good. Two wins in the in the back pocket. Uh, the, the disappointing news was that the Canberra Cavalry, who trailed for most of last night's game against Perth, came back to steal it in a walk-off fashion. And so they keep pace with the Tuatara. It remains just a one-game gap between the two sides. So... Uh, at this point, you know, the destiny is in the Tuatara's hands. They've just got to keep winning. They have six games left of the season. If they win more of those six games, or as many of those six games as the Cavalry do, Tuatara will be playing postseason baseball in just over a week's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, OK. Let's talk about Shu Wei Lin back into the lineup. Uh, Shu Wei Lin has previously played for the Boston Red Sox. He's played at the highest level, playing shortstop. Uh, what did you make of his batting? I'd imagine that he is one player that opposition. Uh, opposition pitching tend to target? Yeah, I think he and Greg Cullen look really classy. Both of them look like you know, established players at that level and probably among the best hitters in, in the ABL. Um, Two-way, just, just recovering from that, that um, injury he had, he got hit on the arm. They were a little bit worried that it might have had a break in it. Had the x-rays all clear um, and good to go this, this weekend. Um, yeah, he's shown signs through the through the series at a opposite field home run on Thursday night, late in the game when the game was, was just about done. Um, put together some some smart at-bats without a whole lot of success last night. Made an uncharacteristic error. Um, did get a, a bit of a bad hop, but it, for a player of his calibre, he should eat that up. You know, um, 99 times out of 100, and he just, just missed one. So um, the defence hasn't been at its absolute highest standard. It's certainly been a, a step in the right direction from where it had been over the last couple of weeks, but um, there's still a fair few things I think Steve Lynch be wanting to tidy up over the, the course of the last couple of games and then heading into what should be a really tough challenge against the Bandits next week. Yeah, that's the thing, hasn't it? And I think that sort of sums up this sort of middle part of the season for the two Tara. It's just been messy. We, we've just yet to see that sort of perfect performance uh, you know, saying that perfect is probably ninety percent across all the different disciplines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and maybe we perhaps we got a little bit carried away in the early part of the year where that was coming consistently. Um, you know, there's some good teams in this league, and uh, we, we're starting to see that. I think the bandits, uh, the bandits, the giants, and, and the Heat have certainly played at a, at a very consistent level right across the season. The Tuatara at times have been there for maybe forty percent of the year. 40% of the year they've been well below par and somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, they've, they've 
have got a bit of work to do to really be in the discussion. If you were talking about Claxton Shield favourites or favourites to win it at this point, I think you'd find there'd be at least three teams ahead of the Tuatara, if not if not more. Um, but they they've got themselves into a position where I mean none of that none of that matters. If you get the wins and you find yourself there uh, in final time, none of that counts for anything. It, it, it'd start again. So and that's and now we're starting to see too with players heading back to their professional clubs, um, just with the way that the deals have been put together, a lot of these players will want to head back. Brisbane have lost Tolbert, who is a very fine player. He was outstanding in the opening series when the Tuatara were there, so he's heading back. We understand there'll be players from most of the main contenders uh, departing potentially after this week. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the balance of power looks like, say, this time next week. Yeah, and the and Tuatara experienced that a couple of years ago. The last time they did play, they won the Northeast Division, only then to have a lot of marquee players having to go back to their respective uh, major league clubs, and we just didn't end up with the pitching power to get the job done. That, that's exactly right. And, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully that's not quite the same case. I think there'll be uh, one player that'll be heading back, and we'll be news on that, I guess. Um, Next, next week, so the Tuatara won't be completely, uh, you know, um, un- untouched with, with that scenario. But I think it will affect some of the other teams a little more than the Tuatara this time around. So we'll, uh, so we'll see what happens a week from now when we head into that final series. Obviously, it's all all on, you know, no matter what. Now uh, it's, it's going to be alive this time next next week. Tuatara will have an opportunity to get the job done and, and play postseason baseball. But um, we'll just wait to see what the Equation's going to look like based on how we go tonight and tomorrow. Okay, game three, six o'clock tonight. Who's likely to be on the mound for the Tuatara? Who's our starting pitcher tonight? Uh, I'm pretty sure it'll be Toru Morata going tonight. So um, he expressed interest in He'd been used early in the season as almost a Sunday specialist, but um, over that New Year period, had to change. Obviously, there was no Sunday game, and he's expressed interest in wanting to pitch on the Saturday night, feeling uh, more comfortable uh, in that role. and I think Mincy quite liked the idea of it when they talked it over. So, Toro uh, Morata almost certainly will go tonight. Um, won't have the two Padres relievers available. Uh, he pitched last night, Chase Walter and Jason Blanchard. It was very good coming on to get the last six outs for the save. Well, I thought we actually ended up taking the win, excuse me, but in, in a um, late, late save situation or closer situation. Um, that'll be that'll be a bit of a challenge, but, you know, we haven't seen Elliot Johnston, Ben Thompson so far this weekend. Expect to see those guys out of the bullpen uh, behind Toru Morata um, tonight if he needs it. Could we see a change? Greg Cullen, he's been used as a DH. Could we see him possibly coming in for maybe Jason Matthews, Clayton Campbell or Wyatt Hoffman and then possibly another hitter coming in? Oh, I think Cullen will definitely play in the field tonight. I was surprised that she didn't play there last night. I'm pretty sure that, that was... Um, uh, but he wanted to have a look at Caber Rodriguez in the outfield, just trying to assess where things are at, I guess, before they get to next week. We may need to look at an outfield hitter, um, someone playing in the outfield uh, from this point forward. So it was just an opportunity. did a pretty good job defensively out there. Um, certainly got called upon to make a couple of big plays and came up with the right the right plays. Um, but yeah, I think you'll see probably Jack Barry back in the lineup tonight. I haven't actually seen the, the, the lineup usually gets posted around about now. Um, I haven't seen it as yet, but it wouldn't surprise me to see Jack Barry back in the lineup. Uh, I think Cullen will play in the field somewhere, whether that's at second base. Um, Matthews may see a little bit of time in the outfield potentially, just to fit. The, you obviously want the bat in the lineup, but um, to, to accommodate everything, we may see. Yeah, may even see Cullen in, in the outfield potentially. So. 
it'll be interesting to see when, when Mincy uh, flicks that through and it'll be posted in about an hour before the game starts. Now, the Brisbane Bronco, uh, Brisbane Bandits, my apologies, who are in town next week for the final home series for the Tuatara. They've had 27 wins. Not only have they clinched the North East Division, but they are now the number one seeds for the ABL playoffs. What can we expect from them next week? Are they? Is this a chance for them, knowing that they've got the domestic season done, to give their wider squad an opportunity and therefore potentially open the door for the Tuatara, or are they going to want to stick to their best line-up and maintain this momentum? Honestly, I don't know. I think that's a very good question, Mark. I, I, you know, what have they got left to achieve? I mean, they've already, they're, no matter what happens, if they lose every game from this point on, they are still the number one seed. So there's nothing left to play for other than pride. I, they, they could go for the most successful, and they may even have that wrapped up by the end of this weekend, It'd be the most successful single-season result of any team in, in the ABL era. So there may not be a lot to play for next week. Now, you know, the Bandits set very high standards, so it wouldn't surprise me at all to see them come across full strength and aim to, to do as well as they possibly can in these final four games before they get into the playoffs. It wouldn't surprise me to see them rest some guys or just try a few little things, that were, you know, just 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 see what, what's out there because despite having this phenomenal record, um, and they have had a season for the ages in Brisbane, there's no question of that, on paper, I'm not convinced that they're that much better or any better, to be honest, than the Adelaide Giants or even the Perth Heat when they're at their best. I don't think there's as much between them as the, the scores suggest. Bennett's have done really, really well. They deserve all the kudos they're getting, but are they that much better than the field? No, I don't think so. So um, I don't know if I'm a Bennett's Bennett supporter, I'm probably wanting the team to keep rolling, keep doing what's working, don't try and change things too much, come in and, and do the business, see if they can... They can beat the Tuatara, sweep them if, if need be. Um, Tuatara obviously be desperate because they've got a playoff spot up for grabs if they're good enough over the last six games. And uh, Yeah, it makes for a fascinating final week. But the other one too, the flip side of that, is the Cavalry go to Sydney and play against a team that'll be mathematically out of the playoff race. So you could say, oh, you know, Canberra are sitting pretty because they're playing against the easy beat. But those two clubs traditionally have probably the strongest rivalry in the ABL, the, the Blue Sox and the Cavalry, and the Blue Sox would absolutely love to do something to stop the Cavalry from from making the postseason. And you know, we've talked, we've, I think you've talked about it right throughout the course of the year. What I that the Blue Sox are better than their record suggests. So, yeah, it's a really fascinating way for the season to finish. Um, Blue Sox got swept down in Canberra to start the season. I'm sure they will be smarting after that and talking about getting some revenge. So. Who knows? Still a lot to play for. The next two nights are crucial because that'll determine what the equation is heading into that last last weekend. Um, so, I think if, if the Tuatara were ahead by a game, they would need to win as many games still as the Blue Sox, uh, excuse me, as the, as the Cavalry in the final round because if it was levelled up, you know, if the, the Tuatara had the advantage going into the final round and the um, Cavalry levelled it up, they would hold the tie break. Likewise, if the Cavs come back and win this current series and do whatever the Tuatara do in in Geelong, and the Tuatara then split the next series the same as whatever the Cavalry do, the Tuatara hold the, the tie-break. It, it is quite a confusing tie-break scenario. So uh, the simple equation for Steve Mitz and the side is win as many games as the Cavs from here on in and you play the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. And just heading into tonight's game, based on that, the Tuatara are one game now in front of the Canberra Cavalry. We lose tonight. They win tonight. We are back even again. Correct. Yep, that's 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 right. And 
So the, the tie-break scenario goes initially head-to-head record with, the, with each other, and that's tied and it can't change. So both have had four wins, four losses. Um, the, the next tie-break to differentiate who would go through if you finished even would be who has the better record within their own division. Now, as that stands, and that won't change this weekend, that is tied. So there is no, they have the same record. So what I'm saying is if we end up in a tie-break situation at the end of the season, and next weekend both teams do exactly what each other does, it would come down to who has the best record against the best team in the league, which is Brisbane, and that would almost certainly be the Tuatara because that's one and three at the moment, and the um, Cavalry finished one and seven. So what the Tuatara's hoping to do is, in a tie-break scenario, do whatever they do in the final round, you're in. If they lose more to uh, lose more next week to Brisbane than the Cavalry do to the Blue Sox, and it ends up tied, it'll be the Cavalry that go through. So very, very um, into almost an advocate. See, see Dale, I, I was... Green capitalist to work it out. Yeah, I, I, look, I was terrible at maths. The teacher always said to me, Mark, you might need maths one day. I said, I won't. But he was right, I do. Um, Dale, that's why they call you Mr. Baseball. Lovely to have you on the programme, big guy. Thank you. No, thanks for your support, man. Yeah, enjoy tonight. 17 minutes away, uh, 17 minutes after midday, you do check that out too. Don't forget, final home series next Friday. Two games on Saturday, one on Sunday against the Northeast Division champions, the Brisbane Bandits. Last chance to see Will Clay's baseball this summer in Auckland. It's been a rain interrupted season. Tuatara not playing their best, winning ugly, but they're still in the fight. There you go, the famous sax and arguably NRL's greatest ever song. Simply the best, Tina Turner. Another song that you never really think about the sax until you hear it and suddenly somebody points it out. That is the theme this hour with our music. We're going to bring out our what we think might be the two most famous songs with the sax and determine which one we think is the best before one o'clock but another big weekend of Premier League football to look forward to Andy Buckley my UK correspondent joins us on the program Andy how are you welcome how are you yeah good probably a little bit better than you actually I mean you're a hardcore city fan everybody was expecting you to get past cellar dwellers Southampton reach another semi-final of the EFL Cup only for Southampton to beat you by two goals to nil, which I guess the pleasing thing is it gives every team in the Premier League some hope and reinforces perhaps the point that, well, City aren't invincible. They're not invincible, no. Um, I suppose on the plus side, it clears the decks a bit uh, with a fixture list because rather than facing a two-legged semi-final, um, City, uh, with a crowded fixture list, have uh, got the schedule eased slightly. However, there were worrying um uh, aspects of the performance at St Mary's because uh, those who made the 400 mile round trip uh, in awful weather from Manchester to Southampton were uh, well they were let down really they turned up but the team didn't uh, and the inquest uh, has been long and hard um, in the last 24 hours since that defeat it, it was mind numbing really I mean City have lost a lot of games and you know it might be the odd goal and they've come unstuck uh, and it happens, but the manner of the defeat was the most uh, disconcerting aspect of it because they were absolutely shocking. They didn't produce a shot on target, which uh, is has not happened for about five years, uh, and it, it, it was appalling. And the fingers being pointed today at uh, people like Phil Foden, uh, Jack Grealish, Calvin Phillips, Zhao Cancelo has really got it in the neck. 
And the thing is, in 48 hours time, less than 48 hours, we've got the Manchester derby. So with United flying uh, and City suddenly uh, having this kind of a panic attack, uh, uh, the people are saying it's a wake-up call. Tellingly, a comment from Ilkay Gundogan, a classy midfielder, wrong side of 30, unfortunately, after the game, he said something is not right and he accepted that City's attitude, their approach, the commitment, uh, something's been missing uh, in the last few weeks. They've been scraping results, they've not been playing convincingly. Uh, so it, it's music to the ears of Liverpool fans like yourself and the rest of the Premier League. And, but it doesn't surprise City fans in the slightest when he said that because uh, last night the, the, everything came crashing down, albeit a one-off cup tie. They could go and win 3-0 at Old Trafford on Saturday. But then again, uh, they could get uh, a bit of a rude awakening in the fact that uh, they need to shape up. Uh, yeah, but Andy, I mean, really, probably maybe outside of Newcastle, possibly Arsenal, are there any? Most of the teams, I think, in the English Premier League, you might include Manchester United uh, as another exception to what I'm about to say, but surely, I mean, we've talked about the busy schedule, we've talked about the fixture lists. Are there any sides that are happy with their consistency at the moment? No, there aren't. I accept that. Um, but. Uh, and I suppose in a way that the kind of romance of the cup when Southampton, bottom of the table, struggling, uh, conjure up a, a, a surprise upset against the favourites, then that underscores really the, the magic of uh, English football and especially cup competitions. But yeah, I, I don't think there's anybody that convincing. I think Arsenal and United are, are the big winners because I, I see them really as the, the, the team's uh, Liverpool are too far off the pace probably to win the Premier League and have got that inconsistency but uh, you know big game coming up uh, Arsenal against Tottenham at the weekend uh, and if United can close the gap on City then United will think well hang on a minute we can not think about the top four we can think of it even going better than that but it's also with this uh, this this uh, uh, the holy grail of the Champions League that's missing from City's role of honour and yes it's a cup competition but you know it's that uncertainty about whether they can deliver at that level and also I've got to make it clear as a City fan and this is what City fans are talking about in Manchester today it is Pep Guardiola has said that if uh, something's broken he won't hang around even though he signed a an extended contract during the World Cup, he won't hang around. And I don't know, there's just something at the back of my mind thinking, would Guardiola be there into next season? I don't know. If they win the Champions League, I think he'll walk away with his head held high. Still walk away with his head held high, whatever happens this season after what he's done over the last few seasons. And nobody's complaining about him at all, but I just get that sense that we're on borrowed time with him, really, as the manager. And and if if, if for some reason City don't do what they've done in the last few seasons, i.e. put together something special, which they can do, 15-16 match winning run, uh, then uh, then, his days could be numbered. Obviously, it'd be his choice when he goes, but uh, it's going to be tough. It is going to be very tough, and it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Mm. Okay, let's have a look at the fixtures coming up this weekend because Southampton will take a huge amount of confidence out of that. They're in the bottom three along with Everton and those two sides play each other. Um, How do you see this one going? Uh, Impossible to predict, really. And I've been looking at the fixtures for this weekend and it's just such a nightmare, really, to to know uh, what Everton team are going to turn up. I think the Everton team at Goodison uh, is is pretty poor, home or away, really, having said that. I think the Toffees have come unstuck. Uh, Southampton how will they respond to that win um, last night against Manchester City Uh, so difficult to say you just can't say with any accuracy really how that one is going to go I just do know we do know that both are absolutely desperate for 
a victory. So we're going to go for a draw. Okay, now Liverpool are away to Brighton. Um, no Virgil van Dijk, an ageing midfield. Brighton, a very much formed team at the moment. I'm going to suggest that my mob, Liverpool, might just lose a game. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, again, I'd still, I'd still be optimistic if I was a Liverpool fan. I think, uh, although Brighton are doing so well, I, I just think if... You know, if he can get it together, Liverpool, there's a chance there. I know you, you, it would point to, I mean, Brighton got that splendid 3-3 draw, didn't they, at Anfield earlier in the season? Was it Trossard with a hat-trick? I don't think he's played in the last couple of games. Uh, but um, you, you fancy Brighton. But uh, again, yeah, I, I, if Liverpool were to come away with 2-0 victory, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest either. We've got the London Northern Derby. We've got Tottenham Hotspur taking on Arsenal. Now, last season, Tottenham Hotspur, I think, won both fixtures against Arsenal. Arsenal top of the Premier League. Tottenham Hotspur, a little bit like City, a little bit like Liverpool. Not sure whether they're coming or going. A huge game. Not a lot of love between these two. In fact, zero love between both these teams. Where do you... What's your sort of sense? Um... Well, Spurs have been bland, haven't they? They're, they're, they're unexciting. I mean, I don't think Conte's uh, long-term prospects. He, he's, he's very impatient. Um, he wants funds. Whether he'll get those funds from Daniel Levy, I'm not too sure. Uh, but a major test of Arsenal's title credentials. This, I think a draw would be a good result for Arsenal. Mm-hmm. I think a draw would be a good result for City at, at Man United. Uh, and Arsenal have got to play City home and away. Spurs have got to play City home and away, all in the space of the next four or five weeks. Uh, if Arsenal can make a statement and beat uh, Tottenham, then uh, fair play to them. Uh, you know, the, 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 I'm not saying they're looking good for the title, but uh, it's another important milestone. Uh, but you never know which Tottenham team's going to turn up either. If Harry Kane, I think he's a couple of goals short of another major milestone, beating Jimmy Greaves' all-time goal-scoring record. Tottenham. Um, so he, he's, uh, you know, he's he's been scoring goals, got a great goal uh, last week. Um, so North London derby, like the Manchester derby, very hard to predict. If you didn't follow the Premier League and you weren't aware of the table, you'd look of the top four teams, which are Arsenal, City, Newcastle United and Manchester United, that this week Newcastle have probably got the easiest game. They take on Fulham. But what people don't realise is Fulham are currently sixth on the table and they come off the, and they're coming into this game with three consecutive wins. Yeah, I know. Uh, amazing record, Fulham. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of support for Fulham. People like uh, Fulham uh, historically uh, and, and they've been this yo-yo team zipping in and out of the Premier League and now it looks as though they're going to stay there for another season so yeah uh, been, it's, it, there's a, people are enjoying Fulham's uh, resurgence uh, and uh, likewise with Newcastle um, but they've got that two-legged semi-final coming up which uh, alright they haven't got Europe to worry about this season maybe next season but um, yeah again Newcastle there's, there's a certain fascination about uh, about about what they're doing, and I suppose it's it keeps Newcastle's success, Fulham's success, and Arsenal's success keeps that freshness really uh, within the Premier League. Because I don't think the Premier League hierarchy wants to see Manchester City win it yet again. It's a bit like Manchester United and like Liverpool back in the eighties. If you you know if you go think of it in my neck of the woods, we've got Wigan Warriors, the, the rugby league team, and, and when they're winning the Challenge Cup every year for about nine years in a row, it becomes tedious. It gets boring. And even clubs, even clubs of uh, uh, supporters of clubs who, who are winning regularly, they might turn around and say, "Well, uh, long may it continue." But it, I don't think it's good for 
any sport really to have a dominance whereby you're just completely ripping the other team to shreds. So uh, that little bit of jeopardy involved in it, it all adds to the mix and all makes it such an exciting spectacle. One of the things actually, talking about exciting spectacles, I was reading about comments about the number of minutes that the ball is actually in play. And apparently it's the lowest for 12 years now. So out of a 90-minute plus game of football, uh, the ball has been in play 54 minutes, 49 seconds. 54 minutes out of 90 minutes. That's an awful lot of time for stoppages. Uh, so David Dean, the, sorry. No, I was just going to say, but we've sort of saw the FIFA World Cup trying to address those issues. We've seen a lot more extra time now, a lot more stoppage time being added on to games. Yeah, but they did. But back in England, it's back in the old ways. It's It's as you were. Um, so nothing's changed and the Premier League said it when they came back from Qatar they said well don't expect that to happen here uh, and I think TV schedules perhaps might be wrong may have something to do with it they don't want uh, advertisers waiting to screen their, their ad breaks for, for 12 minutes well uh, they play catch up football but David Dean the former Arsenal chairman has said that they're going to look and that the International Football Board whose next meeting is in March are going to discuss it and maybe trial it. I'm all in favour of it. I think having a stop clock, like they're doing rugby, basically, uh, for major incidents, not all the time, but for major incidents, goal celebrations, substitutions, stop the clock, and then have a big clock in the stadium. Everybody can see how long it's been played, and then you get more transparency, you get more accuracy. Because people quite literally being shortchanged, if you go to a football match and you're paying good money to watch 54 minutes of football, uh, yeah, I've been recently doing some commentary for New Zealand football in futsal, which is basically indoor soccer for people not familiar with it. Yeah. They play two 20-minute halves, but the clock stops every time the ball goes out, and the game actually ends up lasting 90 minutes in terms of its duration, even though the actual... But, but the ball but you do get to see the full 40 minutes of uh, actual futsal being played. But I'm not sure that I want to see a game um, extended that long, almost twice, sometimes two and a half times the total duration of the game. Oh, no, it'd be like watching American football, wouldn't it? Which uh, is obviously a test of endurance for the best of us. But, um, uh, but maybe it'll speed things up a bit because the time wasters will know that they're not going to get away with it, whereas at the moment they're getting away with it. You just want to kill a game. Then and, and we've seen it. We see it every week. Teams just thinking, right, we're in the lead. We're just going to kill this game. Uh, we're going to kick the ball away as the other team's about to take the throw in. Uh, and it never gets added on. It, it it never ever gets added on. So all we're looking for really is a fair ratio of, of of minutes. And if they know that they can't get away with it, they might get a move on a bit, and they might just uh, not drag the heels mm-hmm. and just prolong. Uh, uh, the frustration. Uh, just finally, before we do let you go, uh, the other game that we probably should touch on this weekend is Chelsea. They take on Crystal Palace. They have played 18 games. They've actually played one game more than Arsenal City, United and Liverpool. They currently sit 10th on the table with just 25 points. They were beaten up badly against your mob 4-0. Graham Potter's come in, former manager of Brighton. They believe he's the right guy going forward. If Chelsea don't win this game, how much pressure does he find himself under? Uh, yeah, he is under pressure. Chelsea are a higher and fire um, regime, certainly under Abramovich, a new owner now, of course, Todd Bowley. Uh, well, there is that sense of uh, impatience uh, in West London. And he is under a lot of pressure and people are suddenly turning around saying, oh, maybe he's not the right fit for Chelsea. Has he got the credentials? Has he got the stature? I don't really think that matters. I think they've got to uh, be patient with him. Nottingham Forest showed patience with Steve Cooper 
uh, and it paid off. It's happened elsewhere as well. That's what people have said about Everton and Frank Lampard. Just stick with them. So uh, whatever the results, um, I think Chelsea just got to grin and bear it. If I said I would stick with him this season, you say, you, you know, we, we grin and bear it because uh, the games are coming thick and fast. He didn't have a World Cup to play with a lot of his his players. I know the, the accusation is that Chelsea have lost their identity. They've lost the personality. Uh, it's not the same caliber of of Chelsea side that it has been, but. It's a transitional time for Chelsea and all clubs will go through it and it comes in cycles. You know that, I know that. You've seen it as a Liverpool supporter, uh, all the dominance that Liverpool enjoyed in the 70s and 80s and then sort of the barren years in terms of the league title in the 90s and beyond. Well, you know, that mob up the road at Old Trafford were uh, winning all before them. Manchester City went through all the anguish and um, for decades and now it, it's been there, there, there decade of dominance but uh, Chelsea have just got to suck it up the problem is of course that the fans get impatient they're so fickle now you could accuse me and say well Andy you're being impatient and you're being fickle as a City fan because you need your reaction to losing at Southampton uh, on Wednesday night in the, the League Cup I get that I take that but uh, you know there's there's uh, everything is analysed and we're part, partly to blame aren't we in the media because we scrutinise it as we are now in such great detail, such minute detail. But then again, it's our game. It belongs to us. Uh, we pay to go through the turnstiles to watch the team. So we're entitled to have our say. And, and they get big books for it. They get highly rewarded for it. So that's the pressure that goes with it. And I suppose Graham Potter, nice bloke that he is, will accept that that's it. You're in the spotlight. Just live with it. Uh, I just hope Chelsea stick with him. Andy Buckley, we appreciate your time today here on the programme. Thank you. Pleasure. What's the song, Ben? It's uh, Men at Work, Who Can It Be Now? Yeah, Men at Work, of course, more famous for Came From A Land Down Under. Some people probably describe them as a bit of a one-hit wonder, but they're anything but a one-hit wonder, Ben. I don't think they're a one-hit wonder. No, I know, but I think probably in the mainstream. It's a song that stands out when you've got such a number one hit. You do mean, only associate... Do you mean the left? Huh? Do you mean the, the left? left? Yeah, the left, that's right, the left. Well, maybe not, maybe not. I'm not sure politics necessarily comes into that one. Uh, 17 minutes away from one, so we've had a music theme over the last couple of hours with saxophones. And we've this has been an initiative by Ben, and it's been good. We've had some different themes on different shows that I've done with him. We did one on harmonicas last week and then songs with people's names in them. And what we try and do is whittle it down to two or three that we think... Um, are the most iconic with that particular instrument. And generally, it's the instrument almost has to make the song. And Piano Man with the sax, absolutely stunning. The harmonica. With the harmonica. And then when it came to names, we actually went with Billie Jean, arguably probably the biggest and most famous song in the world, featuring a name, Sweet Caroline. There were some greats. And so we've gone with the sax. Uh, Ben, have we sort of got a idea here where we think we're going with this one? Well, I think we have to have Baker Street in there. I do, yep. I think we do have to have Baker Street in that. And then, look, I think out of all the ones we've played, I'd say that'd probably be the, the, the main one. you got Bad to the Bone. And Born to Run. 
Yeah, we do have Bourne to run. Unfortunately, we don't have Bourne to run readily available. Um, Can we? Okay, yep. As I went, I chose Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen, and as I said on my research, that one yeah. was a bit more well-known, but I get with Bourne to run being the bigger hit. Mm. Let's um, go back and do Baker Street, Jerry Rafferty. Uh, very, very famous song amongst musos particularly, highly regarded. Let's play a bit more. Well, let's play that again so we can have a listen to Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. Listen to that, that entire essence of that song is driven by the saxophone, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, the saxophone is very prominent in that. And actually, just quickly, I think Careless Whisper should be the other nomination, to be honest. Okay, well, have you got Careless Whisper there? We are going to have Bad to the Bone, too. Cause we'll, we'll do Bad to the Bone first. Because it's a slightly different genre as well. You can hear it right there, and then it goes. It's probably, it's probably the one rock song that really does feature a, a sax, a genuine sort of hard rock. Yeah, rock song, maybe not hard rock, but certainly a rock song. George Thorogood very much into that blues rock genre. Now, what's the third song? Careless Whisper. Play the song by George Michael. Sounds a lot like Jerry Rafferty, though, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it, pro- it, it, it sounds a lot like Baker Street, to be fair. I'm just, I'm just talking about that iconic, because you think when the careless whisper, to me, you think of the saxophone I as mean, well. you play that and go back to the Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. Okay, um, where are you at with this one, mate? If I had to pick right now, I probably would lean towards Baker Street. Yeah, I probably, and and trust me, Baker Street is on my playlist, but I'm probably going to go with Bad to the Bone, I think, just in terms of, if I, I was thinking just of global appeal for people who are not, 
necessarily pure music aficionados. You put it on, and I, I, I sort of look at it more broader. Um, yeah, bad to the bone. I mean, it, it's a hard one because you don't really either have a copy of Born to Run from Bruce Springsteen, which I think probably maybe deserves to be in the semi-finals if we could have four. So I don't know. Do we do we put this out there on the temper bedpost text machine? Yeah, and you literally got about five minutes to get your answers in. Okay, so bad to the bone, or Baker Street from Jerry Rafferty. They're the two. Someone also texting Mike saying you'd have to have the coasters yakety yak. It's the touch touchstone song of sax. But we've dialed it down to two. Tell us which one. Text us, double eight, double three. That particular song with the sax is Rolling Stone's Brown Sugar, but I'm not sure that the sax makes the song. Now, we have, did put it out there to give us your thoughts on which of the songs should take out the title of the best song with the sax in it. And we had... Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. We had Bad to the Bone. And the only text that we've had to come into the decider, in fact, no, we've got still got it split. We've got Bad to the Bone, George Thorogood, and we've got Baker Street. And so we've still got a tie here, Ben. We've got about 40 seconds and a little bit more if someone wants to text us here on 883 8833 or double eight. Is it double eight eleven? Double eight double three. Double eight double three. Three flip a coin. And determine. Bad to the bone or Baker Street? We need to know. We need to work this one out. We need to get it done and dusted. Otherwise, we've got to go to a coin toss, which is not really a good way of sorting anything out. Which is the better of the two songs? Temper Bedpost Text Machine. Good Earl to come. Seven. And then we're going to start going to a music bed. The text coming. How often does it update? Doesn't. Okay, Ben, flip the coin. I don't have a coin. Okay, you don't have a coin. Oh, look at that. Oh, Baker Street comes in. Oh, Ben Francis sends the text. <laughs> ben Francis sends in one to back himself. Oh, Mind you, I in. did put Baker Street forward. So we will go with Baker Street as the most iconic song with a sax in it. There you go. Special thanks to Ben Francis, the good Earl. The boys are up next. Louis Herman Watt, Claydale and Coat. Talking all things racing. Look forward to having your company on Monday. If you're driving around the country, do take care. It's been a privilege and a pleasure.